of his holy word. Um, before we explore this particular verse and the implications of what Luke says here, it is important to note what has just taken place. This is the aftermath of Jesus' famous and necessary temptation in the wilderness following a 40-day fast. It fasted for 40 days and in his flesh, weak from hunger, and he was tempted by Satan. Uh, this corresponds almost as a bookend to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve were in a garden and they were tempted by Satan and they failed and it became a wilderness. Therefore, Jesus goes into the wilderness driven by the spirit, as Mark says in his gospel, and he encounters the one who threw our original parents into a condition of sin by causing them or tempting them to rebel against the established word of God. Bishop Fulton J. Sheen has noted that one way we can describe the temptations of Satan or the temptations of Jesus is they are, he, he calls them three deviations from the cross. In other words, the aim or the goal was to get Jesus to do anything but go to the cross, seek to glorify himself, seek to use his own, uh, his power for his own uh, selfish and fleshly uh, purposes rather than depending on the word of God. And in each instance, Jesus defeated him with the word of God. It should be noted that there is nothing that Jesus does in resisting Satan that Adam himself could not do. In other words, Jesus did not defeat Satan with any supernatural power, but with the power of the human will to desire and obey the word of God over the word of the enemy. So in that case, Jesus, as our federal head, and as the last Adam, Jesus fulfills all of the requirements of the law, including his encounter with Satan, whom he resisted. Now, we know the means by which Jesus did resist him, and he resisted him, again, as we noted, by adhering to the word of God rather than adhering to the word of the enemy. In Matthew's account, it says that at the end of the temptation, because he was worn out both in body and soul, and at the end of this, that he was ministered to by angels. Luke goes on to say that after this, he was driven by angels, or he returned in the spirit, I should say, in the power of the spirit in proclaiming the kingdom of God being at hand. However, at the end of this temptation, this does not mean that Satan, who is defeated in the wilderness and ultimately is defeated on the cross, it does not mean that he will cease in tempting Christ. He will continue and look for other opportunities to tempt him. Now, also in that vein, understand that because we are part of the body of Christ, Apart from our individual temptation, at which we are told to resist, there are points at which the temptation of Satan against Christ is extended to the people of God. And we'll look at that. So what I want to do is look at four opportune times 
that Satan will continue to try to tempt Christ. Two of the examples are in the earthly ministry of Christ prior to his crucifixion, and two concern the continuing presence of Christ through the church. Now hold in mind also that when we speak of of Christ and Satan, this is the ultimate uh, combat, the ultimate battle, the ultimate conflict between the two seeds that we see in Genesis chapter 3 where uh, God tells the serpents that uh, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of the woman. And throughout his ministry, in fact, we can say until he returns, what Satan will attempt to do is to tempt the people of Christ, which in effect is tempting Christ, to resist the will of God in various circumstances. So the question that is before us, because Luke is the only one who gives this little assertion, that after the temptation in the wilderness, that Satan departed, but he only departed, depending on the translation, in the ESV it says that he departed waiting for a more opportune time. In the other translations, I know the King James has it, that he departed for a season indicating that he will return. So we should, as we look at these four areas, hold in mind that until the Lord returns, the enemy is persistent in attacking Christ. And he will attempt to attack Christ, not just him personally as he does here in the wilderness, but he will continue to attempt to to attack Christ even through his church. So let's look at four examples of a more opportune time. Now that the temptation is over, now that Christ has resisted him, when does Satan show up again? Holding in mind that he is always present, always attempting any, in in fact, uh, the way Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, when he speaks of unbelievers, he says that he is at work in the sons of disobedience. So Christ, so Satan, in a sense, is always at work. But there are four particular areas. The first one is this. It, it, Satan finds a more opportune time when the necessity of Christ's suffering and his death are presented. The place that we want to look at this is in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16. And we'll look at verses 21 through 23. Now, again, let me repeat the statement. An an opportune time for Satan to, again, attempt to tempt Christ is when the necessity of his suffering and his death is presented. In Matthew chapter 16, this is the aftermath of Jesus or of Peter's great confession of Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. Remember the situation. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then when they gave the various answers, uh, according to, and by the way, the answers that they give is according to their understanding of the scriptures. The anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. They didn't think that he was actually Isaiah or Jeremiah. They thought he was coming in the spirit of the prophets. And so some identified him as a prophet of God. But Uh, Then Jesus turns to his disciples who had been with him. And he says, but now who do you 
say that I am. That's when Peter speaks out. And he says, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, yes, that's all that's true. But flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my father who is in heaven, he proceeds to give Peter, uh, tell him that upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now it's at this point in verse 21 Jesus, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen happened to you. But he turned and said to, uh, to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So when is an opportune time for Satan to attempt to tempt Christ? And it is whenever the necessity of the suffering and death of Christ is presented because what Satan doesn't want to get out, in, in other words, he is continuing in this situation through the words of Peter. He is continuing what he was attempting to do in the wilderness. If Bishop Fulton J. Sheen's logic holds up, and I think it does here, that the effort in the wilderness was to divert Jesus from the cross. And what, what, what Satan attempted to do in the wilderness is the very thing that Peter is attempting to do here. No, Lord, when Jesus talked about how he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer at the hands of all of the religious leaders, then Peter pulled him aside and rebukes him and says, No, far be it from me to ever let such a thing happen to you. Isn't it interesting that in Luke's gospel also, in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection of Christ, and you have uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus who are despondent because Jesus has been crucified and they don't recognize Jesus. And he asked them, sirs, why are your countenance cast down? Why are, what's wrong? Is there something, is there something wrong? And the two disciples say, oh, you must be a stranger here. You don't know what happened. And he says, well, tell me what happened. Oh, well, Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, we thought that he was a prophet of God. We thought he was the Messiah, but he died. And their logic and their rationale is the fact that he died means he must not be who we thought he was. Now, it's interesting, brothers and sisters, that what Peter says here at Caesarea Philippi is the same mindset that is with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't have any place in their religion for a crucified Savior. So here is where Satan is at work, again, trying to, to tempt Christ, not in this case just through the words of Peter, but certainly in response to his message concerning the necessity of his death, Satan would have us not 
preach and teach and talk about the reality and the necessity of his death. And that, of course, is to the benefit of Satan. It's for this reason that Paul says in 1 Corinthians that our message is foolishness to those who are perishing. Because he says the, 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 the Greeks, the Jews are looking for a sign and, and the Greeks are looking for knowledge and the Romans are looking for power and yet all we have is the foolishness of the message of the cross. I think one of the great, um, great nets of deception that has been draped over the contemporary church is not so much that people aren't going to church, and it's not so much that people aren't excited, it's just that they are going and they are not hearing about a crucified Savior. Yeah. Uh, we have been, we have bought into a fleshly, in fact, notice the way Jesus responds to Peter, and he, te- he, 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 he nails the problem on the head. Here's the problem, he says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The things of man have us defining things and evaluating things according to numbers or according to power, according to the things that appeal to the flesh or to the senses. But we don't understand the greater work of God that is being done through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Satan finds an opportune time whenever, and I'm going to throw that out there, whenever the necessity of the suffering and death of Christ are presented, Satan finds that as an opportune time for deception. Now here's the irony. If you look in Isaiah 63 or or Isaiah 53, uh, you'll see the necessity of that suffering. Uh, We often quote this, sometimes off uh, out of context, but in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace." What Satan doesn't want you to do. He wants you to talk all day long about afflictions. He wants you to talk. He wants you to understand what it means for you to be void of peace. He wants you to to, to really kind of look at the diseases of your body. But what he doesn't want you to know is that through the suffering of Christ, those things are remedied. That we have peace. Our transgressions are removed. And by his stripes we are healed from the thing that afflicts our soul. So a more opportune time for Satan to again cast doubt on the person and work of Christ is whenever the necessity of the death or the the suffering and death of Christ are presented, someone will have a counter message. Uh, And so um, people talk about easy believism, but I think this is what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians when he says that if someone comes with another gospel, then my concern is that you'll believe it. And if someone preaches another Jesus, then you would believe it, or another spirit that you would believe it. He doesn't mean that you will believe someone masquerading as Jesus. But what he does mean is that you will 
find yourself or we as, as fallen humans that if we are not clear and if we are not careful, then we will promote a scarless Jesus, a bloodless gospel. And we will omit the wounds that he bore so that we could have a right standing with God. We mentioned in the past um, Donald Gray uh, Barnhouse message on what would a city that was taken over by Satan, what would it look like? And he says what it would look like, he says there would be all the bars would be closed on Sunday, all the liquor stores would be closed on Sunday, the neighborhood would be well kept, the children would be obedient to their parents, and on Sunday morning, every church would be filled as Christ is not preached. You see, Satan doesn't try to keep us from church per se. He just wants to keep us from Christ. And if you must go to Christ, go to him as the victorious one who does not need to suffer. I think this is the problem part of the problem with the word faith movement and the prosperity gospel. They want a savior without wounds. Because the wounds of the savior extend even to us in our frail and failing bodies. So, a more opportune time for Satan to continue his attack against our savior is whenever the necessity of the suffering and death of Christ are presented. And the option is either the word and way of God, or as Jesus tells Peter, the ways of men, that he has set his mind on the things of men. Here's the second one. Again, this one is connected to actually the continuing earthly ministry of Christ. In chapter 17, verses 41 through 44, where we have Jesus in the garden. Here, I think, is another opportune time. In chapter 17, verses 41 through 44. And Luke says, um, in, yeah, beginning in verse, no, I'm sorry, uh, not 17, 19. Yeah, uh, chapter 19, verse, verses 41 through 44. And when he, oh, no, that's not 19, it's 20. Yeah, in, in the garden, the prayer in the garden. Chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse, uh, uh, beginning in verse, yeah, I, I get, boy, I wrote down the wrong thing. <laughs> in, um, in 22, yeah, uh, 22, yes, chapter 22, verses 41 through 44. And this is Jesus' prayer in the garden, prayer in Gethsemane. Beginning in verse 41, it says that he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him angels from heaven, strengthening him. 
and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. So when is a more opportune time? Not only when the necessity of his suffering and his death are presented, but when his soul is burdened by the will of the Father. It's not just burdened by by having people around him who don't understand, but in this instance, the very purpose or the very reason that he is sweating like drops of blood bursting forth from his vein is not because of anything else other than the will of the Father. Notice his words here. Lord, not my will. I will that this cup, in fact, Matthew has it, I would that this cup would pass me over. And so whatever Jesus is experiencing in his soul prior to his going to uh, Calvary's cross, it burdens him to the point where there, if there was a point where Satan could, could shift his attention away, this is exactly what he's attempting to do in the, in, in the wilderness, and he picks up on that. There is an opportune time when the, the will of the Father is a burden on the soul of the Son. If ever there was a time that you could get him to say no to the will of the Father, it must have been in that moment. But yet, Jesus resists, and he says, No, not my will, but thy will be done. In the same way that Jesus was able to identify that it was Satan through Peter that was diverting the message or responding negatively about the message of his his death and his, his suffering, likewise, he understands that in his flesh as a human being, our, our, our instinct, is to avoid that which is uncomfortable. It's one thing for Jesus to say during the course of his earthly ministry that for me to do the will of the Father is meat. In other words, that it is what meat is to the body is what it is to do the will of the Father. That is up until this very moment. The Apostle Paul captures the essence of of Jesus' obedience and and in obeying, not only was he obeying the will of the Father, but he endured. He's enduring this, this agony of the soul, submitting his will to the will of the Father, even at the expense of a worn of, of, a, of a soul that is worn out by the weight of carrying the idea that he would have to face the wrath of his father. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, what we call the canonic hymn. Uh, Jesus, uh, or Paul, commends Christ in this way. He says, let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Before he actually bears the wrath of God on Calvary, he faces this, he's, this struggle in the will in Gethsemane. The very reason we have this prayer of Jesus on the night of his arrest is to show us that this is a man. This is the God-man. Knowing what he is about to encounter and what he is about to encounter is nothing less than the will of God. Yet, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. An opportune time for Satan to try to distract Christ is when the message of his suffering and his death are presented. And when the weight of divine wrath or doing the will of the Father is weighing heavily on his soul. I think that's for us as well. But in any event, let's look now beyond Jesus' earthly ministry. There are two other examples that are of, of opportune times. And as we said earlier, we always, as we are told by the apostles, both Paul and Peter, to resist the devil. Peter says, resist him and he will flee. But he also reminds us that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the reason Satan is always on our trail is not because of us, it's because of Christ. And therefore, he continues his attack on Christ as he attacks the people of God. So apart from our daily struggles and our daily efforts to resist the will and doing the will of Satan, there are two particular instances that are recorded in the New Testament that give us broader, an, a broader understanding of how Satan continues to, to, to his attack against Christ through his church. Both of them are found in 2 Corinthians. First is when God's people suffer. Through the suffering of God's people. That can be an opportunity for Satan. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and we'll look at verses 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 and 9, and Paul is talking about his own experiences. We kind of touched on it a little bit this morning in looking at the reality of depression, that our soul sometimes is, it clings to sorrow and, and, or is melted by sorrow. But in, in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here is an opportune time for Satan to distract and distort the faith of believers and his, his attack on believers is a continuation of his attack on Christ. That he, and, and, and one of the reasons I, I chose this particular passage is because this is not much different from what Satan was attempting to do with Jesus in the wilderness when it came to turning stones into bread. What he was attempting to get Jesus to do, knowing that he was divine, get him to depend on his own strength and his own ability rather than trusting God in his time of hunger. Yeah. 
In this situation, Paul says, he, he, whatever the situation that he experienced in Asia, he said it brought such distress of, at the level of the soul that he, in such affliction that, that it was such a burden to him that he basically didn't even want to live. And he says what God did through that circumstance and what God did through that, that, that situation, he despaired of life itself. And then he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And so looking away from the purposes of God, looking away from the power of God, it was almost as if he was ready to turn just within and just let it go. But then he says something came out of that. He says, but we, uh, but, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. The suffering of God's people, whether it is physical, whether it is spiritual. Sometimes if we allow ourselves to be distracted, we will give up and become apathetic towards the things of God. And we will rely on our own abilities and that's what Satan wants us to do. He wants to break our gaze upon the Savior and have us look at ourselves. One can certainly think of Peter in that scenario. Remember when Peter saw Jesus walking on the waters and Jesus invited him to come and join him. And Peter started walking and he's looking at Jesus and here he is walking on water. And then he looks around and he sees the winds, he sees the waves. And what happens? He starts to sink. Satan would have God's suffering people to, con to, to concentrate on the wind and the storm and the waves so that we would sink and not rely on the Savior. Here's the fifth or the fourth and final one, and that also is in 2 Corinthians, but also we'll look at a passage in Galatians but, but Satan finds an opportune time to distract and tempt Christ through his people when it comes to dealing with sin within the covenant community. When it comes to dealing with sin in the covenant community. We know, again, that individually we all confess our sins before the Lord. But look at what happens in 2 Corinthians, and we've alluded to this on a number of occasions, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is a young man who has been called out by the church and has been brought under the discipline of the church, and he has come back and has expressed repentance and godly sorrow, the way Paul describes it later, but he has expressed genuine regret and repentance. And so in verse 5, I guess perhaps the people were wondering, I don't know if they had written to, uh, to Paul now that he has repented, what do we do? Or maybe Paul got wind of the fact that they were a little slow in receiving this, this brother. We don't really know. Maybe he heard that, that this brother was being received in the church, but now maybe he was considered as a second-class Christian. In any event, here's what, how Paul responds to that situation. In verse, beginning in verse 5, he says, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure uh, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
So I beg you to affirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And here's the statement. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Here's another way in which another opportune time is when sinners, saved by grace as we are, are allowed to deal with the sins of other sinners. In other words, even though we, can't, we know that we sin continuously and we seek the forgiveness of God, but all of our sins are not broadcast. All of our sins are not seen or known. But there are sins that are made public. And when those sins are made public and dealt with, then everyone gets to point a finger. Everyone, all of a sudden, as we mentioned this morning, uh, this is part of the optical effects of the fall, that somehow the smallest sin in others is a glaring, glaring thing. And it stands out, and we can see it in our fallen condition a mile away. In fact, we are so good at it that even if a person apologizes, if a person says that, that they, they, have, they, they repent, then we, have, we, we are so good in our fallen nature that we even have the ability to determine that they didn't mean it. That's what Paul is addressing here. Brothers and sisters, whenever sinners are given the opportunity to deal with the sins of others, Satan is lurking in the midst, waiting for an opportunity to, 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 to bring not only a rift within the body, but you see what he's doing. This is him, this is his last ditch effort. At Christ, so that the grace of Christ, the grace of God that is located in Christ, that has perhaps caused this person to repent to begin with, is now made null and void. Uh, Paul Zoll, good friend of mine, was or is uh, an Anglican or Episcopal minister, and uh, Paul is a quirky kind of character. He's funny. He's, uh, but but he has uh, he's written a book on, on grace, and he, but he's made this observation about grace. He says about grace that, that church folk, are. we love to talk about how good and how deep God's forgiveness runs. And we love to talk about how gracious God is until someone actually sins until someone else's sins become public then we become vigilantes I'm convinced and I've stated this in a number of settings that the biggest consumers of grace are the cheapest when it comes to dispensing it you see in other words we will drink a gallon and a half of grace from God, but we will dispense it in little thimblefuls to others. 
What Paul is concerned about here is not that anybody is getting away with anything. And hold in mind, brothers and sisters, that's true of all of us, and it's true in all situations. Those of us who are in Christ, our sins are many, but we don't get away with anything. We haven't gotten away with it because every one of our sins, past, present, and future, has been atoned for in the blood of Jesus. So no, we're not dreading what's going to happen in the future. Here's what makes us Christians. We don't, we don't dread what ha- what's going to happen in the future. We look what happened in the past. And that is supposed to have a sobering effect on how we deal with the sins of others and our ability to get up when we've been knocked down by sin. Here's where Satan finds an opportune time when God's people are not gracious in dealing with the failures and the sins of others within the fellowship. One other passage that reaffirms that, and then we'll be done, and that's in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians 6, verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, then you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Dealing with the sins of others within the covenant community is an opportune time for Satan to deceive and distort the people of God so that we don't look more fully to God's grace in Christ and we all of a sudden become thankless or we become like this, the unforgiving steward who had all of his debts forgiven. And as soon as he was set free, he took his little black book and all of the people that owed him, he was just taking them, raking them over the coals for the money which was a fraction of the debt that had been forgiven by him. And when the master heard about it, he said, bring him here. And then he cast him into debtor's prison. Brothers and sisters, we have received all of the grace that we need in the person and work of Christ. And when we do not walk and speak and act in grace towards others, this gives an opportunity for the evil one. It gives an opportunity for the evil one in bringing discouragement to a sinner who has been saved. And it gives opportunity for the evil one to lead those who are spiritually mature to fall down the rabbit trail or the rabbit, rabbit hole of human pride in dealing with the failures of others. Here's what Satan says. I'm going to let him go now, but I'll come back at a more opportune time. And he is with us, and he will continue to look for that opportune time until Jesus returns. I pray that we, like, like Christ, would rebuke him, that we, like Peter, admonishes us that we would resist him. I pray that we would be so built up in who we are and whose we are that we would not only resist him, but we would give no room for the devil, not in the messages that we proclaim, 
not in dealing with suffering as we deal with it in our own flesh and in our own circumstances, and certainly not when it comes to dealing with the sins of others. Let's pray and ask God's blessings. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of the sufficiency of your grace in Christ. We thank you also for the reminder that we are engaged in spiritual warfare, not with political entities, not on a cultural level, but we are engaged in spiritual warfare with principalities, with spiritual forces that are beyond that which we are able to conceive. And we know that behind it all is our great adversary, the evil one, who does not want us to stand boldly in the finished work of our Savior. We pray that you would make us wise in your word, that we would not give opportunity to Satan, even as he tries to seize on opportune times. Thank you for the victory of our Savior. Thank you for his resistance against the evil one. Equip us to do the same. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 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 Would you please?